Well, if you've been around here for a bit, you know we've been on this quest to rediscover what God's nature, his heart, and his, his character is with us. And we've been greatly influenced by um, a few things, and one of them is this author named Darren Hufford, and he's kind of the author of a lot of things you've been hearing, but we've been holding on to the truth that the Word says that God is love, and so we take that and we, we can say, okay, everything that we can learn about God's character, we learn through the lens of understanding what love really is. And so we look at 1 Corinthians 4, or I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, and, and it gives all the attributes of love. And so we've been on this quest of what are the attributes of God by looking at the attributes of love because love is the battleground which determines what we believe God's nature to be. Every lie, every falsehood we have about love, we inherently have about God. And so we've been going through here, and, and I'm just going to read where we, we've caught up to. We're almost there. And so love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily provoked, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And every week we've been substituting God in there and understanding his character through each one of those. And so tonight it's God does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. So we're going to focus on that. And it's, it's hard to imagine somebody looking at evil and calling it love. It seems kind of self-explanatory, and the only way that can happen is someone's perversion of it, and their, I, I, their entire concept of love is so backwards that it moves them around and gets them so confused. And, and I want to share a couple of the lies that sometimes we believe that how God may delight in evil. And the first one is that God does not delight in people going to hell. No matter what your message is, last week I was at Campus Crusade on Sac State, and, and they asked me to do this um, kind of talk on my business and give an altar call. And I just said, anybody who's talking about hell is talking about the wrong thing. You know, God did not come. The story isn't that God created man to save him from hell. God came to earth to give us relationship. And so sometimes in that, that existence of hell, we can look at maybe how things are different. And sometimes, and I just want to confess, like there's areas of Christian hearts that secretly want people to go to hell. I mean, if you got into heaven and you're there and you're walking around and I don't know what you're doing, but you're like, and he's here? You're Kanye West, really? I mean, you'd be so pissed, wouldn't you? I'm just kidding. I'm not, I don't know where he's at with the Lord, but... <laughs> Or Snooky, I mean, fill in your gap of whoever, like, does it for you, right? I mean, you'd, you'd kind of be a little pissed, like, really? Come on. And, but there's an element of where, in the Christian heart, there's a speck of us that wants to protect heaven from the wrong people getting in. And there is something about the nature of, of God wanting all people coming to repentance, as 1 Timothy 2 tells us. He says, I want everybody to come to repentance. And there's an element of our hearts that says, we don't want everybody. And we must know that no matter how much someone irks us or, or wherever they're at, we always must know that God's heart weeps for them if they're not saved. God is always pursuing them to come into knowledge, into relationship with him. And within that, sometimes we also assume that God is going to partner with evil to bring someone to repentance. We look at someone who's maybe gone wayward and, and they've struggled or backslid and we're like, and, and we've, we've all been there for the prayers, like, God, just whatever you need to do, get their attention, including disconnecting their brakes and sending a disease to them. Like, I mean, we know that sometimes we're like, 
you know, God, like, don't bless them with an upgrade. Like, don't give them a raise. Don't let them be happily married. Like, send tragedy. Get the, like, ring their bell. And I mean, I'm just saying what you're already thinking, right? So there, there's an element where we think that God will send disaster upon someone in order to get their attention. And just like the people that we've talked about tonight, those who've lost fathers tonight, those who are waiting the results of cancer of their 18-month-old baby, God is not trying to get attention of anybody. He's not partnering with the enemy and saying, I'm going to give infirmity so that they would be reconciled. That's not part of God's heart at all. And the only time we must know that when someone gets turned around because of tragedy, it actually is the devil's plans backfiring on him. Anytime someone comes back, and I was even at this event and someone's talking about how they're in business and they lost everything. And they talked about how it was God who took it. And I kind of said, like, I don't really believe that. Like, God is the giver. If you look at the scriptures, it's like, I've come to give life and life more abundantly. The preceding verse that is that the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. You have to have in your mind who's giving and who's taking. And so God will not come into your life and take in order to grab your attention. Now, there's a separate talk, topic about the discipline of God that we don't have time for tonight, but the point is, is that the word is very clear on this. It even says in Psalm 146 that God frustrates the plans of the wicked. It's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. God does not delight in evil because evil is what brings people to evil. If the devil really had his plan, he's going to give evil and it's going to draw them for evil. The right response is to say, I have a tragedy in the heck with God. Like, they're going to go the other way. That's what the devil wants. He wants tragedy to produce tragedy and to draw them to more evil. But the kindness of God says that I love you no matter what. He says, I'm reaching for you. I want intimacy with you. And that is what brings him. But God does not participate in the origination of tragedy in order to bring people to repentance. If you want to talk about the story of Job, we talked about that at length several weeks ago, and um, you can go find that story online. Um, so there you go. <laughs> Next is that God doesn't get revenge on people. God doesn't get revenge. He doesn't like store up and, 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 and wait for someone to really get it. And we, we've been in the prayer meetings maybe where someone says like something bad happens and we're like, man, vengeance is mine, God. Like you're, you're going to really nail it to him, right? You know, and so we, we think that God's own people are storing up big spankings from God when something goes wrong. And we take comfort in knowing, okay, you know, that guy really, you know, screwed me over, but uh, man, he's going to have it coming to him. I actually got screwed over in, in business pretty hard. And I was like, oh, this guy, his life is going to, you know, you know, just go to ruins. And now that he, like, he's on like the Inc. 500, you're like, really? Like you couldn't have like given him financial ruin? Like that was not how vengeance is supposed to go. And what got me thinking is that where is the vengeance on? When God says vengeance is mine, vengeance is on hell. Yes. Vengeance is on, on hell and taking people out of the clutches of hell and bringing them back in the kingdom. Yes. We must understand that when Jesus went to the cross, all of God's vengeance took place on sin because it says that he was made sin on our behalf. And so Jesus took the full weight and the full vengeance, the full wrath. That's why the promise of us living in the New Testament, we can be satisfied knowing that God's vengeance against sin has been dealt with. And his vengeance today is all about having hell have fewer people and having the vengeance upon sin and death and bringing them back. 1 John 3, 8 says, The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. 
Jesus has been misinterpreted his entire life, right? People thought he was going to come back and he was going to conquer, you know, the world and he's going to kick the Romans out and they're going to have this huge kingdom and, and, and that he would put to death all of sin. And what happened is that he died a criminal's death and became sin. And it completely dumbfounded the way we looked at things and, and it, it, it perplexed people. It wasn't at all what people thought. And so the vengeance of God is never on God's own people because Jesus came for all. If you don't believe that Jesus came for all and died for all, then you are going to have to come to the truth that you're saying that some people were created just for hell. That's not what the word says. Every person has been created with the possibility, the destiny, the hope, the aspiration that they would come into relationship. And he never participates in that vengeance and that revenge because God is love and, and, and vengeance and, and revenge is all about punishment. But the word's explicit. It says in 1 John 4, 18, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. God also does not delight in fear tactics. You know, some of the most misinterpreted scriptures is, you know, fear the Lord. And we, we think, well, fear the Lord because he's going to, you know, like send me disease or he's going to send me these different things. We have like these crazy mindsets about who's giving each other what in this world. And, and we, we fear the Lord out of punishment. But the word is we just saw, there is no punishment in God if you're his son and his daughter. But we, we'd like to look at scripture and we'd like to say, I need to be afraid of God. And the reason that that is is because our English language actually doesn't have the perfect word for what it means to fear God. The translation is, is more about reverence and awe and recognition of his power. If you look at any time in which Jesus or God or a spiritual being appeared to man, like they fell down in terror, right? It's just, and it's because they're so other. It's just so different. And so the, the deepest part of our relationship must be in recognition of what God has done. But it doesn't mean that we need to partner with fear to bring people to God. Meaning that if you're selling hell and you can make people run from hell, but that doesn't mean you're making them run to God's heart. Just because someone is, is running from flames does not mean that they are, are drawing an intimate relationship with God. It doesn't mean that's going to draw intimacy because, I mean, what that essentially is doing is like telling, like, like I think of things with my daughter now. If, and my daughter's like still really young. She young, has like 12 words that she knows. But if she could talk and understood everything, and let's say someone came over and was like, you better eat your carrots because if you don't, mommy and dad are going to pour gasoline on you and light you on fire. Like, how pissed would I be, right? Like, are you kidding me? You know, like, you'd be so mad. You'd be so mad. But what that does is that spurs a fear that can never be shaken in our daughter. It puts such a, a fear in her that, that she might obey, but I don't think that'll ever get her heart. And some people have been won to Christ that way. And I think it's more work to try and unravel this thing that you've drawn people with. And what I like to believe is that what you draw people to or what they're running from is actually what you're drawing, what you draw people with, I'm sorry, is what you're drawing them to. You draw people to God by fear of hell, you're actually drawing them to hell. Jesus even said this very same thing in, in addressing the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law, the Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Meaning you actually, actually can be a child of hell, not a child of God. I believe it, it depends on how you've been called, who you've been called with. The story of God is not that we've been created to be saved from hell. The story of God is that we've been destined for a relationship with him. God will not... This is controversial, I'm sorry. This is what I firmly believe. 
And don't trust me, just look it up. Just everybody needs to, to know this, but I believe that one of the, the most critical areas in having confidence in your relationship with God is that he won't steal your salvation away from you. I just, I look at the scriptures and I, I just have to take Jesus for his word. John 10, 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So many, I can't tell you how many people I talk with, and they are so fearful that they're going to lose their salvation, or they already have lost their salvation. Like, I've already done too much stuff, and I, there's no way that I could have atonement for this, and, and it gets them so wrapped up in fear, and they're always trying to live down their salvation. And they're always trying to recoup it. Like, I had the same fear growing up. I don't know why, it just was innate. I gave my life like 40 times to Jesus growing up. It was so bad. It was like, you remember like the power team, like, like, like tear apart like phone books and stuff like on TV, right? You know, blow like little medical bags and it pop in their face and, you know, no one knows? Come on. Thank you. I remember like, I should write them a letter. Like I gave my life to them like a hundred times on TV on Saturday mornings. Like I just had this fear like, oh man, I lost my salvation. But only someone who delights in evil would go back on the promises and take back a gift. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son a man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? We need to know that the promises of God are yes and what? Amen. We need to know that when we come into salvation, it says the old is gone. Gone. Like not on the shelf for you ever go back to. I don't understand how we can be seated in heavenly places. And that is the miracle that happens the instant when you give your life to Christ. And then suddenly, like, you get booted out and aren't seated in heaven. Like, how does that work? You've been there for all eternity already. It's this profound mystery, and I just, I don't know what to do with it, but I know that intimacy with the Creator requires stability and security. And we know that the Word says that we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. I don't see any time the Scripture references us becoming an old creation again. Love rejoices with the truth. God rejoices with the truth. God rejoices about the truth about you. There's a difference between the facts of your life and the truth about you. There's a difference between the facts about your life and the truth about you. The facts of your life have nothing to do with the truth of who you are. When God looks at you, he calls you by the name of what he already experiences in the future. In Ephesians, I mean, this is just one of the most profound truths. I just said it a second ago, but that we are currently seated in heavenly places right now. Right, Sean? Amen. <laughs> We're seated, like with him now. Who do you think he's talking to? Is he talking to work in progress, Sean? Or is he talking to perfected Sean? If we are in his presence, if his presence is in us, there's, there's something incredible where God, when he addresses us, he's actually addressing our perfect essence in the spirit realm. Our flesh is still catching up. We're still like wrestling with it. We're still a work in progress, but God always addresses us according to who we already are. You know that Jesus talking with Peter before Peter went and betrayed him. He says, Peter, you are my what? My rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And that was a prophetic word before Peter ever betrayed him. Jesus always engaged with them about who they really were in eternity and in the spirit rather than their cheesy, I'm going to bail out flesh. 
But God sees the heart of you and rejoices over the truth that resides already in your heart, not the results of your flesh. He sees straight to your core in total victory. You have to know that your spirit is already free. We toil and we wrestle with the the areas of life that are not perfected yet, but you have to know that your spirit is in perfection. Your essence, the existence which God connects with is already perfect and just your flesh hasn't caught up yet. That's when God allows us to grow because he always addresses us by according to who we are, not the momentary conditions of your flesh. If you're struggling with your momentary conditions of your flesh, you need to remember who God already says you are right now. Whenever a new believer and just any believer is referenced in the New Testament, it's always royal priesthood, chosen son and daughter. It's never saying work in progress, like got a B minus, hopefully you can turn that thing around. Like it's, it's never that, it's always at the level of perfection. But some people prefer to identify themselves in the result of their flesh instead of their spirit. In our hearts, we say this, we're lowly, we're scum, we sing songs about those things. We, we say how we're sinners saved by grace, right? We identify first by the sinner and all we just did is just already identify that we're lame and, and suck. You know, like we, we do that all the time. And the reputation that you have about yourself in your heart is what you'll live up to. If you think you're a lowly Christian, a sinner saved by grace, you will live a sinner saved by grace life. But if you think that you are a royal chosen son and daughter, you will live like a royal chosen son and daughter. It all depends on which identity you're living from. But we've, we've lived that life for so long. It's become part of us to where like, yeah, we, we don't expect anything of ourselves and if we happen to break past our low expectations, bonus. But we need to start thinking about like, do you want to change the world or not? Sinners saved by grace don't change the world. They kind of exist. They get by. They have great church attendance. But if you, if Jesus says, you will do greater things than I will, that's like, and, and we're like, well, that must be for somebody else. That's for everybody, amen? It says you are more than a conqueror, Amen? You need to start addressing your heart, your reputation, your identity of yourself according to what God already says you are. And we're trying to talk God out of it. Why do we do that? Why do we identify ourselves in such these lowly people? And the behaviors of your life will tell others in, your behaviors will tell others what you believe about yourself and your heart. That's why when we look at trials and we look at things that, that, catch us up and how we respond to those will determine what we really believe about ourselves. Because my Bible says a righteous man falls seven times but gets back up. Everybody else is saying a righteous man doesn't fall at all. It's not what my Bible says. (laughs) So why is it so hard for us to live in that truth? I think it's because We've been living according to the lies. There's a point where if we live a lie long enough, it's actually more comfortable to continue in the lie than it is to ever be in the truth. If you live in a lie long enough, that lie will give you more comfort and protection and security than the truth. And suddenly the truth will terrify you. And you'll be in denial. I've seen this many times. I had this one other client and this guy drove a Lamborghini, <laughs> right? Who, who do you know that drives a Lamborghini? You know, it's like, the guy was like rolling large. I'm like, what does this guy do, you know? And he just was like, 
they're talking about getting a corporate jet and all these different things. And this went on for years. Well, time reveals all things. And it was like this huge money laundering pyramid thing. But the challenge is, what, is that the lie got so perpetuated, it, it became so hard and it became a, this runaway. And he never could live it out. He never could like turn around it and became, he actually started believing his own lies. And so the same thing is about the lies we believe about God. If we believe them long enough, suddenly the truth starts to offend us. That's why this series and like un- uncovering these things has been so good because I get a lot of people like, whoa, that really rubbed me the wrong way. If, if someone's rubbing you the wrong way, it's actually a sign that you need to go deeper in that issue. Somebody's wrong. If you're not offended in church, like, man, are you Jesus? Like, I mean, <laughs> we don't want to be in positions to where we are never challenged. You need to be in environments where you're challenged. You don't go into the weight room and the guy's like, okay, here you go, and it's feathers, and we're going to lift feathers all day, you know? <laughs> it's like, not going to work out. Like, what do they do? Like, they get you on, like, the heavy stuff, and, like, you push, like, you grow through resistance, and with every church, I mean, everybody's going to be fallen, right? I mean, I've preached things in here. I'm like, that wasn't from Jesus, you know? And like, I work through, but we have to be in a position where we can take fruit and spit out seeds. So anything that you hear here or from me, take fruit and spit out seeds. It happens in relationships too where, you know, I can identify with this too, where like, well, she put a smiley face in her text message. And so what she's really trying to say is that we're destined for each other. You know, like people who like try, like they're looking for any angle, like they're, they're already believing the lie and you can't tell them otherwise. It's like, no, they said that they're not into you. Ah, she's playing hard to get. <laughs> she just doesn't know it yet, you know, but God rejoices in the truth about you and he rejoices in the truth about his relationship with you. One of the challenges to living in truth is the, all the people who make a living off of making it complicated. One of the challenges in living with the truth is being surrounded by people who need to make things complicated. What do I mean? Is that there is a simplicity to the gospel. There's a simplicity to relationship with Jesus that's not okay for many people. And they have to make it complex. And they have to theorize. They have to extract. They have to make things that aren't in the Bible. They have to make... I mean, have you ever noticed, like, in my bookshelf, I have a Bible that's this big, and I have books about the Bible like that are, like, you know, rows long, (laughs) There's something that the complexity of the relationship with God, there's an essence into it that surpasses understanding and is actually demonic. That if you can keep people fearful, confused, and terrified of like what God is and who he is and what his relationship is and you have these self-help books, is it actually puts you farther away from God because you feel so intimidated, you feel so unworthy, you feel so unprepared, uneducated for this thing about this relationship with God. And the word addresses this very thing in 2 Corinthians 11. It says, I am afraid lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness that your minds have been led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That this thing that we are pursuing, this essence, it doesn't require seminary. It doesn't require Bible college. It doesn't require, you know, any of these other things. I mean, those things are good, but there's an essence to where the object, the certificate, the institution has actually become glorified more and put on a higher pedestal than the reason they exist in the first place. What their purpose is to do is to illuminate, to give us new tools, to equip us and to give us visibility and vision into the the powerful truths of God. But what has happened in the making of that is that we have said, unless I enter those realms that I will never be able to understand God. 
And God's here to say that his revelation is for all. His revelation is all. His understanding is for all. It says if anybody lacks wisdom, they can what? Ask. I mean, like, how did I miss that in the Bible, you know? But anytime we make the relationship with God more complex, we're actually participating in the lies of Satan that originated sin. Because God made it really clear in the Garden of Eden, but what Satan did is, is he confused it. He made it complex. He made it, well, there's actually certain conditions, and, and he confused people. But when we are, are, are in our faith, we want to feel forgiven, so what do we do? We set up spiritual obstacle courses that we have to go through before we feel better. When someone comes to us and they, they confess sin and they say, I, I'm, I'm struggling, you know what we say? Shrug it off. They are so pissed. Like, what do you mean shrug it off? <laughs> shrug it off. Like, one of these guys. Move on. So how was the game last night? They can't handle it. They're like, no, like, I need to have, I need to be banned from something for like two weeks, and then I need to have a confessional, and then I need to sit in the back pews, I need to give a lot more. And like, they create these, these systems in which they come back in the good graces of God. And, and God's saying, man, I took care of that on the cross. Do you not read the Bible? Like, all was paid. I already took care of it. And so that's why we can come into our struggle and just be like, that wasn't me. Because God addresses us into who we already are right now. The other obstacle in that is to feel equipped to make an impact in the world. We must have an equipping first, right? We must say, well, I can't change the world. I must be equipped. I must go to Bible college. I must go to, you know, fill in the blank. I must learn this skill. I must do that or, or whatever. And so we set up all these conditions before we go and change the world. And what you need to know is that in that process, what you're doing is you're trying to be built and then to find a calling. It's completely backwards. I went to this uh, tech conference a couple weeks ago, and there's all these startups that have these amazing solutions, these amazing apps and whatever. And they're like, they make this cool thing and they try to invent a problem it solves. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't make sense. You need to know that the calling of God is the equipping of God. The calling of God in your life is the equipping of God. He will never call you into something that you are not equipped for. The calling is the sign that you are already prepared, you are already ready for it. Will you grow? Certainly. But the saddest thing is when I hear somebody that they feel God leading and then they, they immediately give them a to-do list before that'll ever take place. Why wait? Go now. If you have the calling, that's all you need. You're far better than every other Christian practically who's like, I don't know what my calling is. Have you asked? I never thought about that. Hmm, <laughs> you know? But God rejoices in the truth that he made this revelation, he made exchange, he made intimacy available to all. We have direct access to God. Did you know like the significance when it calls us royal priests? Like we're like, we think of Catholics with like the, you know, the thing and the robes and maybe like the swinging thing with smoke. And like we think of like something that's not relative to us. But if you understand the Old Testament context, when, when the Bible says you are a royal priest, it was like radical. Why? Because in the Old Testament, you had one person who had access to God that all of the people had to come to. And so when it says that you're royal priest, what it basically means is like, instead of having like landlines and maybe like there's one telephone in the city that gets out, he's like, I've installed wireless and Wi-Fi and cell phones for everybody, is basically what it's saying. It says we all have direct access to God. By saying that you're a priest means that you are a representative with direct access to God for anybody who does not have a phone yet. Amen? And same with the spirit of revelation. 
It says that we would receive the ability to perceive and to understand profound mysteries from God. 1 John 2, 27 says this, says, For as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, abide in him. The revelation's free, but the authority is developed. We all have revelation from God. We all hear God's voice. We read the, the passage tonight, my sheep hear my voice. Are you hearing the voice of God? Do you know his calling? Are, are you on that level? Are you receiving revelation? It's all available to us. It, you, don't, you don't need to do anything besides just be in relationship with him. As the band comes up and we close, I just wanted to, um, just to let you guys know that God is not in the business of making us look too hard for him. It says, when you seek me, you will find me. That many of us are on a journey to try and find God, and he's just saying, when you seek me, you'll find me. My sheep hear my voice. He's made it so accessible to us. He sees you exactly as you are by what he sees in the heavenly realms. And that within that, he rejoices in who you are. And he never is going to partner anything that brings you shame. He's not going to partner anything that, that teams up with the devil to do any of that stuff. But we're on a journey where we have to decide that we want to live in the truth long enough. One of the things we learn in Christ's life is that until you start living according to the truth, the lie will persist and the lie will continue to own you. That until you live in the vein of truth long enough, that that lie will still have dominion over you.